Um, what I we had Anton Memorial Service this morning, and I want to read to you the eulogy that I read there. two nights of my life at open air concerts like that, you won't hear me complaining. And by the way, when she died, she was wearing an Eric Clapton t-shirt, which is also cool. Early Sunday, I could tell she was having a hard time breathing, and I took her to urgent care about 7.30. They wanted to get her admitted to hunting dinner, as they usually do, and I gave my usual reply that I had promised her and me that she wasn't going into hospital ever again. And please, will they get her stabilized and send us home with antibiotics and oxygen like before? During the time there, I was half aware that she wasn't stabilizing so much. But about 12.30, I was in the midst of leaving to be at home to receive the oxygen so they could send her home. There were a couple of nurses and a doctor in the room. And suddenly one of them said, she stopped breathing. And another nurse maybe looked across at the monitor where the lines were going flat like in a TV movie. And that nurse said, she's gone. It reminded me of the scriptural phrase about giving up the spirit, giving the breath back to the God who gave it. And had breathed her last. For a moment or two, the doctor and the nurses felt the pulses and things like that, but they knew that we weren't due to go in for aggressive measures of resuscitation. And after, after a moment, I asked them to leave me alone down for a bit. And I held her and prayed for her and gave her to God. Then it became a bit fast-like, as they didn't really want this dead body around too long, please. So, which was my mortuary. And because we have been near this moment before, I had that one worked out. So I came home to get the information and call them and call our sons and call Christine, Anne's loving caretaker, with me for the last two years. She and her husband came with me to urgent care to be with me with Anne until the mortuary person came at four o'clock. We sat with Anne and held her hand and prayed and felt her getting colder. It was very significant to have that long period of time with her. The man then wrapped her in a clean white linen shroud, again like the gospel story, and we said goodbye to her body. She is being cremated tomorrow, uh, and I should have ashes uh, with me on Wednesday. We'll have a memorial service in our son's church near London on Friday, and I will scatter the ashes in the valley where we spent the first night of our honeymoon, 42 years ago next month.
and where I remember the happiness with which we went for a walk that first morning of our married life. Her in a little white dress with blue and yellow flowers. I was due to preach yesterday, but I asked to be excused. Though if I had preached, the New, lesson, the New Testament lesson that was set for yesterday in the Episcopal Church would have been impossible to resist. Here it is in Eugene Peterson's paraphrase. I was given the gift of a handicap, Paul says, to keep me in constant touch with my limitations. At first I didn't think of it as a gift, and I begged God to remove it. Three times I did that. And then he told me, my grace is enough. It's all you need. My strength comes into its own in your weaknesses. It's hard for people who knew Anne only in her latter years to imagine her as a person full of regular human strength, full of life and energy as she was. Among the words that have been used to describe her to me over the, over the past few days have been feisty, insightful, determined, caring, and funny. Another description was incredibly polite, which just shows you how a married couple can have complimentary respects. Uh, and by the way, I know she sat up this morning and said, John, you can't go to my memorial in shorts and a pink shirt. And I practiced my reply, which was, well, you took off, dear, so you surrendered the position to influence what happened. <laughs> but I found out that I was wrong, and I put on this white shirt. When we started dating, she was a top student in her medical school, and also the lady vice president of the London University Christian Fellowship. There was a glass ceiling for women, as I think the probably still is, and that, that was as high as a woman could get. Through her life from then on, she served God and served other people, though in changing ways. For the first third of the years that she lived with MS, she combined with a plum, being girlfriend and wife and mother, student and doctor and psychiatrist, not to say clergy wife and professor's wife. Then the course of the illness changed, and she gradually lost her physical capacities and her capacity for remembering things and so on so that for most people in California, she has been a silent figure in a wheelchair. Three times and more, we and other people begged God to remove this handicap. But God said, my strength come to its own, comes into its own in her weakness. And I know from things people say and have said since her death that she has ministered silently to hundreds of people. There were at least two people this morning who had flown from the other side of the country to be here today because of what she meant to them when they were at Fuller, even though they never heard her speak. For much of this time, she was actually more content uh, than in the years when she was relatively fit. She became less driven, less liable to anxiety. One person who emailed me described the way she communicated her centeredness and grace student who quite recently gave her communion in a spiritual sense when, because she couldn't physically receive the bread and wine in chapel, said, I felt that Anne gave me a small gift, an offering of life to our body of Christ, and a reminder to me that God embraces me through my limited and broken self.
Those two comments come as near as I have to offering clues regarding the nature of her powerful ministry. She reminded people that God embraces us in our brokenness and our limitations. And she did this especially as she affirmed her centeredness in God's grace, not dependent on what we do. But it has troubled me the last year or two that she has sometimes seemed not, so, not quite so content and at peace as before. And I have thought, Lord, do you think she's fulfilled this vocation for long enough? Couldn't you let her rest now? I didn't quite say this to God, because when I do say such things to God, God is inclined to reply, what I do with Anne is between Anne and me, so shut up. <laughs> but perhaps God heard me anyway. A few months ago, we watched a movie called And When Did You Last See Your Father? A memoir by the poet Blake Morrison about his relationship with his father, and in particular about his father's illness and decline at the end of his life. And a question about the gradual disappearance of a person in life as life ends away. It made me write a parallel poem, as if someone had asked me, and when did you last see Anne? Was it the last time she was able to raise her eyebrow? Was it the last time she smiled? Was it the last time she swallowed? Was it the last time she laughed? Was it the last time she said, John? Was it the last time she cried? Was it the last time she transferred to a pew in church? Was it the last time she signed her name? Was it the last time she could complain of what you were doing? Was it the last time she could give herself something to eat? Was it the last time she decided what she would like for dinner? Was it the last time she could walk? Was it the last time she could remember her address? Was it the last time she said no? Was it the last time she slept in the same bed as you? Was it the last time she could climb stairs? Was it the last time she could go to the bathroom on her own? Was it the last time she took part in a conversation? Was it the last time she decided what to wear? Was it the last time she could get you a birthday card? Was it the last time she used the phone? Was it the last time she prayed out loud? Was it the last time she made love with you? Was it the last time she read a book? Was it the last time she drove the car? Was it the last time she used the computer? Was it the last time she gave her testimony? Was it the last time she went to work? Was it the last time she cooked dinner? Was it the last time she took a photograph? Was it the last time she could wash and dry her own hair? Was it the last time she danced with you? Was it the last time she could cut your hair? Was it the last time she played tennis with you? Was it the last time she wrote a paper? With all, the, with all, the, with all those, I never knew it would be the last time until afterwards. 
which you never did that thing again. And when I wrote that poem, I wondered, what other last time could there yet be? What is there left? This week, I was in a position to answer that question, what other last time could there yet be? When did you last see Anne? It was the last time she breathed. You never know it will be the last time until afterwards, when she never does when she never does that thing again. But in her life, God's strength sure came into its own in her weakness. One of our friends in an email spoke of his vivid memory of the day you told me of Anne's illness all those years ago, and of your faith then that God was in it, with you, and always would be. Forty-three years ago it was, and God has been in it, and with her, and with me, all through. Moses went up from the plains of Moab to Mount Nebo to the top of Pisgah, which is opposite Jericho. And the Lord showed him the whole land, Gilead as far as Dan, all Naphtali, the land of Ephraim and Manasseh, all the land of Judah as far as the western sea, the Negev and the plain, that is the valley of Jericho, the city of palm trees, as far as Zohar. The Lord said to him, this is the land of which I swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob, saying, I will give it to your descendants. And let you see it with your eyes, but you shall not cross over there. Then Moses, the servant of the Lord, died there in the land of Moab, at the Lord's command. He was buried in a valley in the land of Moab opposite Beth Peor. But no one knows his burial place to this day. Moses was 120 years old when he died. His sight was unimpaired and his vigor had not abated. The Israelites wept for Moses in the plain of Moab 30 days. Then the period of mourning for Moses was ended. and for Anne uh, was a severely tough aspect to their dying
for Anne because it was but the end of a long, 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 long period of dying away. And for Moses because of what seems to us to us tough decision to have him die before he reached the promised land. To see it, but not tread it. Thank you that you were involved with Moses through his life, with its ups and downs. And I thank you for your involvement in Anne's life, with its ups and downs. Thank you for your faithfulness. with which you subordinate what might seem nicest for us for somebody to the purpose that you're on about in the world. And as we continue to study the story of the Israelites and the Moses, which is also and story and our story. We pray that you will give us understanding and light into our lives a deeper trust in your faithfulness and a deeper willingness to walk in the way that you want us to walk. We pray in Jesus' name. So we'll sing um, Amazing Grace, which uh, is
if you were here on Wednesday or if you watched the video at home, then you can simply then just check on here uh, and all uh, on Wednesday, uh, I need to send people London in the afternoon. Um, and I'm sorry that the video business didn't work so well last week. Um, I, I was too sick to check where, what difference there might be between the video that passed a year or so ago and um, what I was planning to do. Um, and uh, I discovered when I came to find out where the problems were, when I had to talk to Chris about it. That uh, in particular, I was planning to do a lecture on marriage and family analysis, which uh, I'd never done before, and therefore wasn't on the uh, video. Uh, and so I will include some of that stuff tonight uh, in the second half. Um, am I right that you also didn't get the stuff on the historical value of Genesis, of the story of the ancestors? Is that right? The world blank looks. You did get that. A little bit. A little bit. Okay, well, I'll, um, yeah, well, we'll, we'll cover that in uh, that bit tonight as well. Um, the, we have checked the relationship between the six stuff, the online stuff, and the, what will be the, the uh, class, speaking on this evening, um, and they are more or less the same. Uh, so, it should go better this Wednesday evening. Uh, so, Jim, you're in charge. Um, uh, the, so, if you by by Wednesday, by that time, it should be uh, on Moodle as well. Um, and on that assumption, if you don't wish to come all the way to the class, then that's fine. Um, we'll do the, when we do the roster next Monday. Then, whether you're here or not, sign for uh, the, uh, having having watched the videos on the assumption that you've done that. Uh, another quirk, another oddity, is that they are going to do something to the, to the air conditioning in this building on Wednesday. Uh, and if, it ha if they haven't done it by 5 o'clock, it's, it's an oven in these buildings. Uh, and uh, the class, I think, will then move to Travis. The Red Star's working on um, not, having, not having to have classes in here on Wednesday evening. On the slide, I'll just try it on Wednesday evening if the air conditioning works. Um, so, um, there might be a, a message, an email about that by Wednesday afternoon, or it might be that you come up here and you find nobody here, and that, uh, and they're, actually that's because they're in trouble, well, there should be a notice on that, that they pass over the trials. Um, anything else about logistics that I need to say? Um. Uh, in that case, let's go into what's, um, what I've set down for tonight, uh, which starts off with introducing Exodus 1 to 18 on page 64. John Durham um, nicely takes the phrase to describe Exodus um, 
the expression Yahweh in the midst. In the first half of the book, uh, it's Yahweh in the midst acting, and in the second half of the book, it's Yahweh in the midst being. The first half of the book, uh, or speaking, uh, and, in the, uh, and at the end of the book, it's Yahweh in the midst being. That's the kind of plot, in a way, that the uh, suggests. In the first half, Yahweh is acting, doing things, Israel out of Egypt, taking people Sinai. In the major part of the second half of the book, uh, Yahweh is speaking to Israel, uh, giving his revelation and his expectations of them. Uh, and when they have built the wilderness dwelling, the sanctuary, uh, that in the way that the latter part of Exodus describes, Yahweh comes to take up his dwelling there. So Yahweh in the midst acting, speaking, dwelling. In this first half then, as I said, the story is about how Yahweh delivered Israel from bondage in Egypt. Uh, Moses being the mediator. Uh, as Moses will later on be the mediator of the speaking, here Moses is the mediator of the acting. The story begins with Israel in Egypt having experienced a splendid fulfillment of those promises of God that uh, were announced to Abraham and have been repeated through Genesis 12 to 15. And this with regard to their increase in numbers. Uh, they are a people who now flourish hugely, uh, the, beginning, the beginning of Exodus declares. The Israelites were fruitful and prolific. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. And although the translation doesn't bring this out quite as um, clearly as it might, the words are, are reminiscent both of what God said back in Genesis 1 and then what God said to Abraham about filling, being fruitful and filling the earth. That was God's purpose in the as a whole. When God laid hold of Abraham, then it was in order that that purpose should reach fulfillment initially in Abraham's family. Uh, and that on the way towards reaching fulfillment uh, in the world. And here is a stage of that being fulfilled. But the trouble is, um, that, well, well, two things. One is, they have reached um, great numbers, but they're in the wrong country. Uh, and, well, at least as seriously, though in a way as um, something that will lead towards that being put right, uh, they find themselves under... Um, oppression of the country in which they live because precisely of how many they have become. Flourishing then that's in fulfillment of, with God's, uh, in fulfillment of God's promise. Oppression that's in tension with God's promise. Not the kind of thing that through Genesis you'd ever have thought was due to happen to the Israelites. The trouble there is in Egypt at this point is probably something to do with changes between the dynasties. The uh, 18th dynasty, the dynasty of Tutankhamun, um, came to an end uh, not long before Moses' day. Tutankhamun himself was childless. Uh, there were one or two coups, uh, and eventually a whole new dynasty, the 19th dynasty, starts. The dynasty of which Ramesses II is one of the great pharaohs. The, 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 the pharaoh gives his name uh, to the city of Ramesses that gets mentioned in Exodus chapter 1. Um, and the Israelites are caught up uh, in the 
troubles that there are, the disturbances that there are, the changes that there are from the management in Egypt at, at that, in that period of the uh, 14th, 13th century, if that's the right um, historical context, the right date against which to read the story. In the context of the form of oppression that the Israelites experience, the role um, of some women in these uh, two chapters is very significant. Uh, there are the midwives uh, who won't do what the king tells them to do uh, and moreover lie about it. Uh, it's an indication, maybe, maybe I mentioned this in connection with Genesis, I can't remember, um, that you get one or two stories uh, in Genesis. Uh, I suppose Tamar would be um, uh, in part of this, as you get it elsewhere in the Old Testament. Are people uh, telling untruths without a story apparently criticizing them? Um, now this goes against everything that your mother told you. Um, you shall not bear false witness, maybe your father said to you. And whenever you said that you didn't take a cookie out of the cookie jar, then you have contravened um, that commandment. No, that's just parental oppression. Um, you should not. Uh, I mean, you shouldn't take cookies out of the cookie jar because you'll end up a beast. But um, uh, but but the commandment uh, about false witness isn't about um, truth telling in that kind of sense. It's a, it's a, it's about um, giving false testimony in court that could lead to running somebody's death. The the scriptures seem okay about these people telling at best half truths. And I think the reason for that is because the understanding of truth in their context is different from ours. Uh, truth, uh, the, the telling of truth, is part of truthfulness in relationship. Truthfulness um, in relationship, then, uh, if there isn't truthfulness, truthfulness in relationship, then, then to insist on truthfulness in the things you say um, is, is to be, is not to, not to recognize, not to live with the true nature of truth. There isn't truth in the, in the way in which Pharaoh uh, relates to Israel. So Pharaoh, Pharaoh has no um, right to expect truth in the things that the midwives say to, uh, to Pharaoh. Uh, truth is something that uh, people in power owe to people who are not in power. So um, I have to be truthful in relation to you, but you can tell lies to me. Thank you. Uh, often they demand the expectation of truth. Now, the control of truth is something which people in power attempt to do. Um, and resisting that pressure is something which the power maybe the only thing the power of the powerless can do. And that's the there's a, 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 a different way of thinking about truth and truthfulness that's implicit. Um, this kind of story. It's the same between Judah and Tamar. Um, there, there wasn't truthfulness in that relationship as a whole. The midwives then are key to the beginnings of the story of God's activity um, in Exodus, of God acting, um, and uh, the <coughs> mother uh, of Moses and his sister, and the daughter of Pharaoh, uh, are also here. Um, and so, both in chapter 1 and chapter 2, you see illustrated what I've called on the sheet, the, powerless, the powerlessness of human power. 
Pharaoh has all the power in the world. But he can't get a grip of these Israelites, and not least because of these silly women. But it turns out that the silly women are more powerful than the power of Pharaoh. Moses' mother and sister and Pharaoh's daughter then play a key part in Moses becoming the person who can be the one who brings Israel out of Egypt. Note what else as I said on the sheet. The vulnerable, risky means by which God prepares to act. Everything depends on her mother. Um, Moses' mother saw that he was a fine baby. Well, every mother thinks it's a blooming fine baby, doesn't she? You know, I don't think there doesn't need to be of anything especially fine about Moses. The light shines out of his eyes for his mother. Everything depends um, on a mother uh, and a basket on a sister and a daughter. In the beginning of the story. When Moses grows up, when Moses grows up, Moses uh, acts as a revolutionary. He's identified with his people, not with those amongst whom he's grown up. He cares about his people. He acts in love in relation to his people. But he acts impulsively, well, pretty impulsively, and he acts uselessly. Exodus doesn't offer you uh, an explicit evaluation of what he does. There are people who say, well, obviously Moses did the wrong thing. And there are other people who say, well, obviously Moses was doing the right thing. Uh, and we cannot resolve that question because Exodus doesn't do so. And it seems to me it doesn't give us enough clues to know the answer to, uh, to that question. And that's uh, a sign uh, that, that all the way through the story, uh, the one who is acting uh, is God, not Moses. In Hebrews, Moses is a model of faith. Moses isn't a model of faith in the Old Testament. Moses is just a guy with whom, with whom God does things, and or despite whom God does things. He starts acting rather like a revolutionary. He becomes something more like a prophet. In the sense, he is called like a prophet. The, the account of Moses' call in, in, in Exodus chapters 3 to 4 um, is the kind of story you get told uh, about someone like Jeremiah, who also doesn't want the job, thank you very much. Um, or or um, especially of Jeremiah, though also of someone like uh, Amos um, or Isaiah, when they tell us about uh, their call. He's called in the manner of a prophet and he doesn't want to do the job. Though it is the case in the way that the story of this call um, is described, that uh, he is being called to be an agent, somebody who will do something, and not merely somebody who will speak. We talk a lot about vocation, about God's call, uh, but most of the stories about vocation in the Bible are such as ought to scare the pants off you. In the sense that they offer no comfort to our um, assumption that our freedom involves the question of application, that God calls us to do the things that would be good for us to do anyway. God doesn't take any of that into account. And 
the same way as he did it with Adam. Uh, God takes by the scruff of the neck someone like Moses or Saul of Tarsus because God wants to do something. Um, and uh, he's quite happy to make surreal demands uh, of people. And we need to be aware of, not that there's necessarily anything wrong with what we, we mean by vocation and when we talk about discerning a, voca a vocation and all that stuff. There isn't necessarily anything wrong with it, but it has absolutely nothing to do with anything that the Bible calls vocation. And it is always a bit working when the way, as is, as, as is often the case, that the way that we talk about things, uh, we use words, we use Bible words. Um, but the way that we use Bible words doesn't correspond to the way that the Bible, to the words that the things to which the Bible attaches to those words. Um, in, in, in the Bible story, uh, in a case like Moses or Paul, you don't run for election, you get drafted. And if you're wise, you run in the opposite direction. But uh, at least in the story of the Bible, nobody ever escapes. Of course, maybe lots of people did. And their stories aren't there, so it's worth trying. <laughs> and when it says that thing about Moses being the meekest guy in all the world, well, well, you've got to take account of the fact that most of the potential leaders have been killed, and maybe the ones with a bit more gumption have run away, and Moses was simply the guy who was too slow. questions, of course, is, um, well, all right then, what, who should I say you are? Uh, and Moses receives a revelation of God's name, uh, and Yahweh is the God who is there. Uh, I'll say a little bit more about that, um, that, name, that revelation uh, later on, presented in the context here. He needs to be able to tell people who God is, but of significance in the context is the way in which that revelation of God's name uh, links with the notions of revelation and of redemption. There has been, um, sometimes still is, theological argument about what we mean by revelation and what we mean by redemption. Where do you find revelation? Is God revealed in his words or is God revealed in his acts? It's obviously a stupid question, but then we're theologians, we're not very sensible. But here is um, a pattern that you'll find recurring uh, in, well, in Scripture as a whole, but particularly clearly also in, in Isaiah, uh, about the notion of revelation and the, relation and, and the relationship between God's revelation and God's acts. The way it works is God reveals himself in the sense of saying, I'm going to do X. The X might be bad news or it might be good news. But then God acts, then something happens. And then God says, you see, I did it. How do I tell people about it? <coughs> Revelation and redemption are essentially intertwined in, in relationship to each other. When God does make a revelation, offer a revelation, it's about something what, that God is going to do. And when God does act, the, the basis, the way in which you know it's God acting is because yesterday God said, I'm going to do X, then X happens. It's not just that something happens and then somebody says that was God. God says, there's the thing happens. God says, you see, now here's what he's going to tell people. Preparing your person, not to go below to profit. 
The third chunk on that sheet, uh, the struggle with Pharaoh from weakness to victory. The extra story uh, is not nearly, not even first. No, that's a good thing. I told you what I was going to say, then I'll tell you what's wrong. Uh, <laughs> um, I was going to say, it's not, it's not first of all God's act of delivering Israel from Egypt, but it obviously it is that first of all. That's, that's where the story starts, with the Israelites' cry and God responding to it. But, but it is at least as much the first great conflict between God and an imperial power, God and a superpower. Uh, the moment when God establishes who is king around here, who is in charge around here, who has power around here. In order simply to get Israel out of Egypt, you go straight from chapter 3 uh, to chapter 12 or something. You don't need all that plagues nonsense, right? Uh, that's, that's quite irrelevant to get Israel out of Egypt. But given that part of the point of what's going on here is that in getting the Israelites out of Egypt, Yahweh is demonstrating who is God and who reigns in the world. Well, that's where the significance of the plagues comes. There is a conflict going on that God is initiating between himself and Pharaoh as the one who is the embodiment of power in the world the one who is the, the pharaoh of the superpower of the day. The Old Testament, and for that matter, the New Testament, keeps, keeps dealing with this motif of the tension between God and the superpower. Uh, later on, it will be Assyria, Babylon, Persia, Greece, Rome, uh, the great Middle Eastern and then European powers. But it starts off with this hour um, of, the, of the Nile, which in the day, the beginning days of Israel, um, is the significant, is the superpower in their region. The Mesopotamian powers haven't yet taken an interest in, in the area where Israel is. Here it is a battle then in which God demonstrates who is God, and which God keeps giving uh, Pharaoh the chance to recognise it. The, the verb to know comes a lot in, the, in this story. That you may know that Yahweh is God. But I think I have drawn your attention to the fact that the Hebrew verb to put it, that means uh, to know also means to acknowledge. Have I talked about that? No. I'm going to have to do it then, aren't I? Well, that's it really. <laughs> um, that, that the Hebrew word to know also is not, is not, as is typical of the way Hebrew thinks, it's, it's actually a bit related to the truth question, um, that, that, that in the way that uh, the biblical thinking works, the, the mind or the thinking of the brain and theory and passive commitment of life are much more, in, are thought of in a much more integral fashion than they are for us. So they've never invented seminaries. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You know, where, where you spend all your time thinking about things, but you don't get a chance to put them into practice, where, where, where theory and practice are separate. 
The only way that Hebrew language works is to make that hard to do. Because when the Old Testament talks about knowing the law, it doesn't mean did they know what the Torah says, it means did they acknowledge the law. And when they talk about knowing the Lord, they don't mean knowing theology, nor do they mean having a kind of inside personal experiential relationship with God. They mean do you, do you acknowledge the Lord? Do you acknowledge God? Do you make God, God in your life? A few weeks ago, um, uh, I was um, stopped for speeding on the 10. Now, this is quite an achievement to, to speed on the 10, right? But I managed it. The man said, I was doing 82 according to his radar. And it cost me. Um, and he, after we stopped, he said to me, as they do, Sir, do you know what the speed limit was on that road? <laughs> well, yeah, I could say, I guess I knew it was 65. Um, but if, if we had been speaking Hebrew, which would have been bizarre, um, I wouldn't have known what the right answer was. Because I knew the speed limit, but I wasn't acknowledging the speed limit. So if I ever get stopped for speeding in Israel, I don't know what I will do. Put your hand, are you waving at me? Go on. What's the Hebrew word? A yada. Uh, uh, that's the verb. The noun, not just that. So, if you want to say, I can't speak, I don't know Hebrew, it's Aenani Yodaya Irit. So, that's that's a, well, that's a knowing of a, of a practical mind as well. I don't know how to do something. Um, now, when, when Exodus keeps talking about, um, this, I'm going to do this as Yahweh so that you may know that I am God. It doesn't mean, um, it's not talking about a theoretical knowledge, or for that matter, an Israelite text. It talks about the Israelites coming to know God. The question is, is Pharaoh going to acknowledge that Yahweh is God? Is Pharaoh going to treat Yahweh as God? Um, and Pharaoh is given all sorts of opportunities to do that. Keeps, here's another play. See if this one makes a difference. See if this one convinces you. Um, Another word that keeps recurring to the story is the, is, the, is the verb to serve. Though, again, you don't see that as clearly um, in the translations um, as you might. Because whenever I think, well, yes, when, when, when you get the word, the word worship, or the word slavery, or the word servitude, or the word serve, that it's all the same word. So the Israelites are being taken out of servitude, servitude, slavery, bondage in Egypt in order that they may be servants, slaves, in bondage to Yahweh. Uh, you can't necessarily see, can't always see that from the English, and you need to remind yourself And those words are, um, our bad is to serve, uh, and Bogar is service. So whether it's service or bondage or slavery, uh, it's the same word. It's the same family of words. Uh, and that links with the point about the relationship between Yahweh and Pharaoh. Uh, is a certain authority over the Israelites. They are my servants, they're not your servants. Now we think of the Exodus as something that takes the Israelites out of bondage into freedom. 
It ain't no such thing. It's just like being converted. Uh, sorry about the bad news, but don't take any out of the service, service of Satan, out of the service of unrighteousness, into the service of God, into the service of Christ. It's, uh, it is indeed a service which is perfect freedom, as a travel policy, but it's a, uh, it's a service the extra story is the first great conflict then between God and the superior power, in which uh, God is concerned to put down the superpower, ultimately as a means of blessing just ordinary nations who aren't superpowers. In order to show who is really king. In dealing with the leader of Israel in this world, then the key motif that keeps recurring is the motif which in the traditional translations comes out as the hardening of Pharaoh's heart. Uh, it's a, it's a, a misleading expression because the heart of Hebrew is not something with which you have emotions, but something with which you think. It's your mind, it's your resolve. Um, and so what Exodus is talking about is the stiffening of Pharaoh's resolve, or the closing of Pharaoh's mind. And the way in which it talks about that, um, about, about uses, uses the relation, talks about it in relationship between closing and mind, is very telling for us understanding the dynamics of a relationship between God um, and Pharaoh. Because note the different ways in which the story talks about this and the order in which they come. First, Yahweh declares the intention, I will close Pharaoh's mind. But, but then it talks about Pharaoh's mind being closed. And then it talks about Pharaoh closing his mind. And then after, only after it's done that does it talk about Yahweh closing Pharaoh's mind. There's a wonderful um, working at the, this intricate and mysterious matter of the relationship between God's sovereignty and human responsibility uh, in the way in which Exodus tells the story. It's an interesting example, uh, which we'll be looking at one or two more in Exodus, of the way in which uh, you can do theology by telling a story. You can't adequately um, explore the nature of the relationship between divine sovereignty and human responsibility as a conceptual idea in the way that we've traditionally tried to do in systematic theology, you get yourself into a tangle. The way in which the Bible discusses tricky issues like that is by telling a story and, and, and utilizing the potential of different ways of describing in this case who's doing the closing of the mind. It looks at it from different angles and uh, affirms the different aspects the truth that needs to be affirmed about that without atten attempting to reduce the complexity in such a way as you end up with either God isn't really in so or either God isn't really in control or God's sovereignty doesn't mean to think <coughs> which is what's important to us is that we should have free will. Or alternatively, that God has all the control and therefore our responsibility of free will disappears. The way the Bible uses uh, the language safeguards you against either of those false resolutions. Yahweh's sovereignty is asserted by Yahweh asserting the intention to close Pharaoh's mind. 
So before there's any intention, before there's any reference to Yahweh actually doing so, there is description of this, the mysterious fact that Pharaoh's mind was closed without any declaration of who did it. It's simply a fact. And then uh, there is reference to Pharaoh closing his own mind, which draws attention to Pharaoh's responsibility. But lest you should resolve, lest you should think that we've resolved the question of the relationship again, Exodus comes back to, oh yeah, you have to close Pharaoh's mind. Oh, didn't Pharaoh close his own mind? Yeah, oh yeah, he did that. It, it, it never tries to get out of the multiform ways in which one needs to look at those realities um, and not seem to simplify them down. The struggle with Pharaoh is the victory. From Egypt to the Red Sea, from the service uh, of Pharaoh to the service of Yahweh. Um, I anticipate myself from talking about service just now. There's, that, that's, there's the note um, uh, about that relationship between freedom and worship, freedom and service. The aim of leaving Egypt is in order to worship in the sense of being, of being in order to serve. Uh, the significance of Passover. Uh, as the uh, festival of Israel will remember the, uh, the way that God brought them out of Egypt, uh, the significance of the giving of the firstborn, because uh, a basis upon which God is claiming Israel is as his firstborn. The uh, climatic, you think when, when they leave Egypt, you come to the end of the story of their relationship with the Pharaoh. But Pharaoh's going to have one more go. going to try once more. Um, and thereby, as we were, walking to God's trap. Um, so that at the Red Sea, the uh, climactic victory is won by Yahweh over Pharaoh. And the women who were so significant at the beginning of the story, but have disappeared uh, since the middle of chapter 2, um, reappear to lead in singing and dancing um, uh, in chapter 15 in the song uh, that Miriam and Moses lead Israel in the singing of, as, as Miriam puts it, Sing to Yahweh, for he has triumphed gloriously. Horse and rider he has thrown into the sea. As it puts it at the end of the main block of, the, of that song, Yahweh will reign forever and ever. Yahweh will reign forever and ever. Yahweh will show himself to be the one who is king and will be king forever and ever. The bottom of the page, the last chunk of the story, uh, takes the Israelites from the Red Sea to Sinai, uh, from security to risk. Um, okay, God's brought them out of Egypt. Does he then kind of dump them? And, okay, off you go. Get towards the promised land. Should I let them take it? Okay, walk there. Um, and they find that they have left the security of bondage for the precariousness of it. They find, uh, you find, God finds, that they are an unchanged people. Uh, a people who start complaining at God. Uh, when it looks as if provision is going to be short, or when the provision is a bit boring. Uh, but a people who uh, eventually um, are coming near a place where they will meet with God at Sinai. Uh, 
and in chapter 18, uh, meet up with Moses' Midianite family, and in particular his um, Midianite priest father-in-law. And there, the Midianite priest comes to hear of what God has done in bringing, in bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, uh, and says, Blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you from the Egyptians and from Pharaoh. Now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods, because he delivered the people from the Egyptians. And here is the first fruit, first conversion, uh, coming out of the story of God bringing the Israelites out of Egypt. And the priest comes to be a worshipper of Yahweh. Uh, a, first, a first fruit of that process that was declared back at the beginning of the Abraham story about what God did with Abraham's people being something to bring blessing to the nations. And so when you read a story about Jethro or about Balaam or about uh, Rahab at the beginning of Joshua, uh, as this story progresses, you see the first fruits of God's intention for the whole world to come to acknowledge that there is God as a result of seeing what God has done with the Israelites. Um, anything else, anything anybody would like to say about all that stuff so far? Mm -hmm. um, just in kind of thinking about the um, Jethro being a priest. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Melchizedek. Yeah. 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 So I'm, I'm kind of wondering about all these priests who are mentioned, but they're outside of the line, you know, the chosen people. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, it seems like with Jethro, I mean, I don't know, do you have to say about that? I mean, with Melchizedek, it seems more, I mean, he is say there's any difference between those two. Um, when when, when um, Melchizedek and Abraham meet up, um, there's a very telling description of the way in which they talk to each other. Um, in which um, Melchizedek comes along in Genesis 14 and says, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, maker of heaven and earth. And blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. Now, talking about God as God most high, kind of the way, kind of way you would talk about God um, if you were an Israelite. I mean, you could, just, if you're an Israelite as well, but it wouldn't be a good and nice way of talking about God. When um, that, when Abraham comes to speak, Abraham says, "I have sworn to Yahweh, God most high, Maker of heaven and earth." Melchizedek says, Blessed be Abraham by God most high, maker of heaven and earth. Abraham says, I have sworn to Yahweh God most high. Now that's a really telling, uh, again, piece of narrative theology statement about the relationship between Melchizedek's religion, if you like, and Abraham's religion. Melchizedek's the revelation that Melchizedek had and the revelation that Abraham had. Uh, that 
Melchizedek, Melchizedek has got some under, the kind of understanding of who God is, the basic truths about God, that Paul at the beginning of Romans presupposes that all humanity has had. But by having that, you can't have the specialness of what God uh, revealed to Israel through the way that God was involved uh, with Israel itself on, on the way towards the coming of Christ. So there, there, are, there is, as it were, gospel truth that you can't have by definition if you don't know about the God. If you don't know about what God did in Israel and uh, Jesus, then you can't know that. If you know about God as the creator and a person who is concerned about you and a person who becomes obligations, then you can't know those, those things about God. And the way in which the Abraham story is told reflects uh, both an affirmation, suggests both an affirmation of what Melchizedek does know, but also a recognition that Melchizedek, what Melchizedek doesn't, it knows, isn't, isn't enough because he needs to know about Yahweh as well. And the presupposition, I suggest, of the Jethro story is exactly the same. Moses could, as it were, get along with Jethro and his family and presumably worship with them and so on. Though uh, and yet, it's still the case that, that Jethro, who knows some basics about God, uh, needs to uh, discover the whole uh, gospel story. Uh, and that provides uh, uh, significant models for, that, for the way in which you go about, when you go about to talk um, the gospel with Muslims, say, uh, you go and talk to people who know some basic things about God, but who need to know the gospel story. Can she ask another story? Another question? Mm -hmm. No, just anything, so I'll say yes, go on. Okay, um, I know this is but how does, when it says that Jesus is a, a priest of the order of Melchizedek? Oh, yes. Um, well, Melchizedek is the priest king of Salem, right? Uh, which is uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, at least there are. The, Salem is identified, I mean, sounds plausible enough, and, and um, the, that identification is made. Um, so, the king of Jerusalem, the king of Israel, um, by virtue of being Melchizedek's successor, uh, Melchizedek is, is the priest king of Jerusalem. Uh, that is, it, it was regularly, it was quite normal. Um, in, I mean, they, they weren't enlightened like you. They hadn't separated church and state, right? Um, and uh, and so, in, in any Canaanite city, the, the top guy uh, would be both, the, as it were, the, the, key, the key priest, the high priest, and the king. That means that when uh, the Davidic king, when, when David comes to be the king of Jerusalem, he becomes the successor of Melchizedek, right? So Psalm 110 uh, talks about uh, the Davidic king in Jerusalem being a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. The Davidic king was not a priest according to the regular Israelite order because you had to be a Levite to be a priest. You had to belong to the clan of Levi to be a priest. But there is a sense in which the Davidic king is a priest after the order of Melchizedek as opposed to after the order of Levi. Now, um, when, uh, when Jesus comes along, 
and, and Hebrews wants to be able to uh, interpret what went on on the cross in terms of sacrifice and atonement and priestly action and things like that. It can't claim that Jesus is a priest after the order of Levi, because he didn't belong to the tribe of Levi, because he belonged to the tribe of Judah, which he needed to belong to if he was to be the Messiah. If he belonged to the tribe of Levi, he's in trouble because he can't be the Messiah. If he belongs to the tribe of Judah, he's in trouble because he can't be a priest. Right? But Hebrews cleverly gets, solves that problem uh, by drawing your attention to the fact that he is a priest, but he's a priest after the order of Melchizedek, by virtue of being David's successor, not um, uh, even though he's not a priest after uh, the order of Levi. Will that do? Right. Uh, okay. Okay. trouble is Melchizedek doesn't really mean king of righteousness. Uh, it means something like righteousness is my king, or my king is righteousness, something like that. Um, uh, uh, it, and it's, it, but it is typical uh, of, the na of names in the Old Testament that, that well, neither the, neither the name Abraham nor the, nor the name Abraham mean, means father of a multitude. It means exalted father or something like that. It's characteristic, or it's common, nothing variable, but common with Old Testament names, that they are more, um, the expression play on words is unfortunate, because it sounds as if it's not serious. Uh, but, but comments about the significance of names very often involve kind of jumps, play on words, rather than actual, the actual meaning of names. And so to talk about Melchizedek meaning king of righteousness, in a strict etymological dictionary sense, it doesn't mean king of righteousness. But it has lots of the word king and righteousness lying around in it. And, and so you can kind of do things with it theologically on the basis of that kind of um, operation rather than on the basis of the um, I'm out of, um, beyond the area of my expertise. I'd have to go and look up a commentary in Hebrews. And, um, yes, uh, I, don't know, I don't know what the person would die. Well, certainly, from, from my point of view, that would make sense. But, but, but I, am, I am aware that there's a whole, in, in the Judaism of New Testament times, there's a whole, um, um, I'm just saying Melchizedek cult, I don't mean that. I mean, there's, a, there's, a, there's, a, there's lots of interest in Melchizedek. Uh, there is a document from Qumran um, about Melchizedek. Uh, and, and so my, my hunch is that what Hebrews has got to say about Melchizedek needs to be seen in the context of other Jewish uh, traditions about Melchizedek in New Testament times. Um, yeah, uh, and, 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 and there are other bits of Jewish um, literature we used to understand that we help understand what's going on when he was using the time. don't do anything, they just, they talk. Uh, agents do things. That's, 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 uh, yeah. uh, uh, 
suppose you could say that, in our thinking, prophet and agent are both subsets of leader. Uh, yeah, that would be the same. Let me, let me, um, we should finish at 7.20, shouldn't we? I'm just wretched working out how the clock works now. Um, it's so difficult. That's right. Normally we finish at 10 to a... That's right. We should finish at 7.20, shouldn't we, for the break? That's that right, yeah. Let, let, let me have a look at pages 69 and 70, the God of the which um, relates a bit, expands a bit on some things I was saying just now in response to one or two uh, of those questions. pages, uh, I'm talking about three different sorts of ways of talking about God in terms of names uh, that you get in Genesis, but also in, uh, in, in, and then in Exodus, um, and then further on in the Torah as well. The first kind is that kind that I mentioned in effect in connection with Melchizedek. Names that follow a standard Middle Eastern pattern. That is, names that are compounded with the designation Ale. Uh, that's a term that points to God as powerful and transcendent, but also as concerned for humanity. So Melchizedek's title for God is God Most High, which is El Elyon. Uh, you can see that the, there's a smooth breathing on the front of El and a rough breathing on the front of Elyon, because those represent two different letters um, in Hebrew. The smooth breathing is a smooth breathing, and same smooth breathing in Greek. But a rough breathing is more guttural sound, malleable. But um, us European throats don't usually bother to try to God Most High then is maker of heaven and earth, um, and that's the um, title of God that this Jerusalem priest king, Melchizedek, uses. God of seeing, El Roi, is the name given to God by the Egyptian servant Hagar, the first theologian. Uh, Almighty God, El Shaddai, is God's own self-designation to Abraham. Uh, we don't know the origin of the word Shaddai. You will sometimes find people telling you it's, it means God's got breasts. Uh, you'll sometimes find people telling you that uh, it means mountainous God um, on the basis of the fact that there are that the word shag is the word, is the word for a rest, and there's also the word for mountain that suggests um, that's, that there's got this um, shag uh, and there's also a word for destroying uh, being destructive as the same words uh, but there's virtually no indication in the Old Testament that when you said El Shaddai, anybody had any of those resonances running through their head. So think of it simply as a name. The translation Almighty uh, makes sense. Um, the conventional translation uh, Almighty makes sense in the context in which this term is used. Lasting God, everlasting God, Ail Olam, is Abraham's designation for God. Uh, the lastingness of God could be backwards or forwards or both. Bethel God, El Bethel, is God's self-designation to Jacob, reminding Jacob of their meeting at Bethel. El, 
um, is the Mesopotamian seer Balaam's natural term for God. So you can see how that illustrates how Ale is the natural term for God that anyone who wants to live right could use. Uh, and these are all designations of God which Israel could use, but which and which a non-Israel would find would find odd. Second, Israel's ancestors had, had distinctive names for God. In Genesis 12 to 50, God is the God of Abraham, um, the reverence of Isaac. It comes out in the old translations as the fear of Isaac, and that gives you a false impression. Um, some people think that it means kinsman rather than reverence fear. Uh, and the mighty one of Jacob. That designation suggests a particular relationship between God and each of these leaders for the sake of their people. God makes promises to them and leads them on their journey. God isn't committed to being accessible in a particular place. So it's not that God is the God of Jerusalem, for instance. They themselves are not settled in a place, so having God settled in a place wouldn't help them a great deal. God is involved with them and committed to them as a people who are on the move. And specifically, God is involved with their leader as the person who leads them uh, in their movements. So he talked about God as the God of Abraham, the reverence of Isaac, the mighty one of Jacob, is a, a description of God, a self-revelation of God, that corresponds to the kind of way in which they need God to relate to them. One implication of God being on the move with people is you can't tie God down. Any attempt to represent God in a fixed way, by means of an image, is bound to misrepresent God. That's the fundamental objection to images. The same objection holds to building a fixed place of worship. Later on, when David wants to build a temple, and God says, eh, no, not so much. I like being able to move around. A further implication is that different aspects of God's character emerge or come into clearer focus as the story develops. Some, someone who lives an ongoing life in relationship with other people naturally changes in interaction with their lives and words. And this is true of God. You discover more about someone the more time you spend with them in different circumstances. God isn't much of a warrior in Genesis. But God apparently has to become a warrior in Exodus. Of course, God remains consistent, not fickle, and it's not, in one sense, God doesn't change because those capacities were there in God all the time. But different circumstances make it possible for different characteristics to emerge to find expression. So that's general Middle Eastern ways of talking about God. And then there's the particular distinctive ways of talking about God that apply to Abraham and Jacob. Then on the next page, page 70, where it says at the top, Israel's own distinctive name for God. Uh, when God appears to Moses, Exodus 3 and Exodus 6 declare that whereas God had related to Israel's ancestors as the God of Abraham and so on, and as El Shaddai and so on, the name Yahweh is now revealed to their descendants. And in some ways this is a bit of a puzzle because John's Genesis also portrays the ancestors as themselves, worshippers of Yahweh. Perhaps Genesis is operating with the theological conviction that this was the same God as the ancestor's God, and so it may then have felt it was appropriate to use the name Yahweh anachronistically um, in Genesis. A bit the way that the NIV will give the Holy Spirit capital letters in the Old Testament, implying that that phrase refers to the third person of the Trinity. Or perhaps what's happening in Exodus is a renaming of God more like when Abraham is renamed Abraham. A form of the name Yahweh 
maybe the short form Yah, which occurs in Exodus. Uh, the Israelites would have known the short form of that name beforehand, but now the name is reworked as Yahweh and reinterpreted in something like the way Abraham's name is reworked and Sarah's name is reworked. The reworking of God's name, either way, anyway, the, the revelation of God's name in Exodus gives God's name a connection with the verb to be. Um, it, again, it's a play on words kind of thing, because when you've seen the, the name Yahweh does not really correspond to a form of the, of the verb to be, but it, 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 it almost does. So it gives you the chance to think theologically about what that might imply when you link that name with the verb to be. So um, Exodus, uh, God in Exodus tells Moses that being Yahweh means being God is always there always able to be present and active when the people need God to be present and active. And present and active in different ways. I'll be what I'll be. Because what, I'll be, what I'm going to need to be is going to be different in your different, different circumstances of your life. So I can be whatever I need to be. I'll be with you. A classic description of Yahweh comes in Exodus 34. The words that come there reappear a number of times in the Old Testament. Yahweh is compassionate, Rahu, which links with the word for womb and suggests that God has the feelings of a mother towards people. God is gracious, pain, equivalent to charis in Greek, amazing grace. God is long-tempered. God is big in commitment, chesed, the word traditionally translated steadfast love. God is big in faithfulness, God keeps commitment to a thousand generations, 25,000 years, which should keep most of us going. Um, God is forgiving. But the Hebrew word most often translated forgive, the word that comes in that passage, is the word that literally means to carry. Uh, so what God does with your sin is carry it. When somebody else wrongs you, if you don't wrong them back, um, if you turn the other cheek, then you carry the consequences of their sin. Instead of you throwing back at them, insisting on them carrying them. That's what God does with that sin. Not that God clears the guilty. Presumably it's referring to people who don't seek forgiveness. Uh, indeed, God visits the consequences of sin, presumably on generations who persist in it. But God only does that for three or four generations. The, 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 uh, the generations that are family that we live together that are affected by the way in which one generation's sin affects the next generation. In Leviticus, Yahweh's characteristic self-description is as the Holy One. Uh, here, as elsewhere in the Old Testament, holy denotes not a moral quality, but a metaphysical quality. As the Holy One, when you say God is holy, you're saying that Yahweh is quite different from human beings. Transcendent, awesome, distinctive. Believers in the late Old Testament period stopped using the name of Yahweh and replaced it by the designation, the, he the, the, the Hebrew word for the Lord. And that moved on from uh, Jewish usage to the Septuagint, the Greek Bible, and to the Vulgate, the Latin Bible, and into English translations except for the Jerusalem Bible and other languages. So whenever you see the Lord, or God, in all capital letters like that in the English Bible, the text has actually got the name Yahweh. Now there is God who in Exodus says, uh, call me Yahweh, call me by name. Um, and you might think it's a shame, 
that we were invited to stand by my name and decided we wouldn't. And I've taken a snag about uh, renaming Yahweh Lord so much is that, this, is that this introduces a marked patriarchal caste into Old Testament faith, which actually isn't there. Because the name um, ceased to be used, because people stopped using the name, we're not absolutely sure about the pronunciation, but Yahweh, or Yahweh, is pretty certain. Um, Jehovah is a non-word that combines the consonants of Yahweh with the vowels of the Hebrew word for Lord which is bad news for the Jehovah's Witnesses, but they do have more profound theological problems. <laughs> uh, I'll see you back in 20 minutes.